Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, increasingly, the headlines in lots of newspapers and in uh, magazine articles are noting the impact of the last year of the pandemic on mental health. And we're seeing employees are quitting in record numbers. I'm seeing that in all of my clients. I'm hearing it from people who want to quit, and I'm seeing that in headlines everywhere. Every level within the organizations that I'm experiencing seem to be having higher stress than a year before or even than two years before. What we want to focus on today is what is actually happening across the board. What can you do about it as a leader inside an organization? And more importantly, for the long run, how do you build a culture that's going to minimize the anxiety and really truly support mental health? Now, my guest today is Adrian Gostick. Adrian is a number one best-selling leadership author, and he provides advice to some of the world's most well-known organizations on managing change, engaging employees, and leading high-performance cultures. He's a leadership strategy columnist for Forbes, Forbes, I can't speak today, and Gostick is also the author of a New York Times bestsellers. Here we go. All In is book one. The Carrot Principle is book two. The Best Teams Win is book three. And the fourth one, the one we're going to talk about today, is Anxiety at Work. His books have been translated into 30 languages and have sold over a million and a half copies around the world. And he has been called, by the way, as fascinating by Forbes magazine, creative and refreshing by the New York Times. He's appeared on the NBC Today Show and on CNN, and he's often quoted in The Economist, Newsweek, and Wall Street Journal. I should add that Aaron also has his own podcast, which is ranking, at least to come to some scales, as number three in mental health categories, and it's called Anxiety at Work. Adrian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Wanda. appreciate you having me. Hey, it's a pleasure. This is a hot topic. I can't believe how much time I've been spending in the last six months talking about anxiety, um, stress, the impact of stress on performance is my big driver. But before we launch into that, why? Why do you care about the anxiety? What got you started? Well, this is something that's very personal to to me. My my son Anthony, who's 25 now, he, he's a brilliant young man. He graduated in with a degree in genetics and biotechnology. He's about to start his master's at USC in uh, regenerative medicine. Not a dumb kid. Uh, he's had anxiety all his life and has learned had to learn to work with that. Uh, worked three years in, in genetics labs while he was in college and 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 after that. And so he's 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 learned to to sort of work with this issue that he's been going. And what, what we found is that he was certainly not alone. In fact, he introduced us to dozens of young people. We started interviewing many young people about this issue. And what we found is to a person, young people, they talk about anxiety all the time. I mean, all the time. Almost every conversation they say, we talk about our mental health. You oldies, you never talk about it, they say. And and so we have this generational issue that we started noticing. Um, And what we found was 
this has really become a huge issue, especially during the pandemic, where now one third of all employees are reporting full-blown anxiety disorder issues. Uh, not just a little anxiety here and there, almost debilitating anxiety, including more than 42% of people in their 20s. It, and yet we still, most of us don't really talk about this. It, it's as if, you know, we have a, say a third of our employees come in with, with a broken arm every day that we don't talk about. We don't talk about broken arms around here. You just deal with that on your own. Well, it's ridiculous. Well, that's what most organizations are starting to realize that they've got to start addressing this. And where do they begin? Yeah. Oh, boy, I have lots of comments on that one. Um, one is a third of the employees are having full-blown anxiety, but I bet there's 70 to 80% that are having impacts of the anxiety. And I'll give you an example. Just today, I'm coaching somebody I've known for years, super talented female leader in a great position, organization going through a massive change. What else is new? Something she's been through dozens of times in her career. So she should be prepared for this. But she's having massive anxiety that is limiting her ability to think. She just can't, stuff she knows how to do. It's like, what am I supposed to do? How do I do this? And I finally said to her, you've done this before. What's the problem? The problem is not the thinking. The problem is the mental health and the emotion, the impact, the anxiety. So I think it's massive. I also think it's killing productivity. If you think about how inefficient somebody with a broken arm would be doing work, that's what, I mean, to use your metaphor, that's what we're talking about here. This is a big deal. And number three, another mindfulness program, I don't think is sufficient. Not to discredit that that's not helpful. Of course it is. But okay. So a third of all employees are having full-blown anxiety. Now, you led into this. You think it's a generational difference. Is this just that the younger generation is experiencing it more, or is it that they're talking about it more? And, and it's, it is both, um, because we are seeing, as you, you mentioned with the coach, that you're, the coachee that you're working with, uh, we're seeing this with people of all generations. And what we're finding is there's a silver lining with the pandemic. It was that people of all levels, uh, of all ages are realizing this mental health stuff is really real because I finally felt it. You know, I'm trying to balance work and life and get the kids. If I still have kids at home, I'm trying to get them to do their schoolwork. And I'm worrying about my aging parents who won't do what they're supposed to be doing with the protocols. Everybody started feeling this stress, which led in many cases to, to, to full-blown anxiety. So, it is something that now is really is reaching everyone. And yes, younger people definitely do talk about it more. In our interviews, they told us, look, you can't fix something you don't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) No brainer, folks. Um, But we are also seeing much higher levels of anxiety in the younger generation. And, and the, you know, the $64,000 question is, is why? Well, you know, first of all, this is a generation that's been brought up with electronic devices that are constantly on, constantly creating stress and and leading to anxiety in their lives. Social media is a huge contributor 
to, to anxiety. We're constantly comparing ourselves to, to others. <laughs> How am I doing versus, you know, gee, they look like they're having fun all the time or they're so successful. There's so many contributors. We, we've also done this ourselves as parents. We've raised a generation that is afraid of everything. They, you know, we, we had active shooter drills within schools. So kids are thinking, oh, okay, so there's a good chance somebody's going to come in here with a gun. So now you've got a generation that's in their 20s that goes into a movie theater looking for the exits, looking for how do I get out of here if there's trouble? Um, and, and it's just a different environment that they're in with media, with social media, with so much going on that we as bosses, we just have to be more observant and more empathetic than we ever have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, I want to get to how we do that in a moment. Um, I want to underscore the importance of social media. I'm sure parents of young teenagers are conscious of that, but I'm not sure we're thinking about it in terms of our young adults. So my son is similar age to your son, a little bit older, and pretty savvy and pretty straight and pretty doing some wonderful things and not suffering with anxiety in any sense. But he says, even if I know that my friends posting on social media are color coding it in the most positive light and that every day is not great, it makes me question whether or not I'm having the best experience I could have, whether I've got the best job or the best boss or the best vacation or the best meal or the best whatever. And he said, you just, it's like a constant barrage. I think that's true. And you mentioned the shooter drills, but you just have to think about how much we've taught kids to be afraid of strangers, obviously for good reasons, but there's a lot of teaching we've needed to do about fear in the environment. Yeah, okay. So said. Yeah, great. Okay. So your uh, final conclusion is that, yes, the younger generation is more tuned to it, but they're also more comfortable talking about it. Absolutely. And I, and I love what you just mentioned about your son that, you know, there's a young man who's got his head, uh, you know, just on straight, as we would say, he's got everything going for him. And he's affected it by this. Now, imagine if you are somebody who is one of those 40% of people in their 20s, who is predisposed to, to be more anxious, how does that affect them? And, and yet, you know, you can't not be on social media, they're thinking. That's right. And so there's so many external influences affecting people right now. Right. Okay. Now, I think I need to back up just a moment before we dive into what we do inside of organizations. And you mentioned at the beginning full-blown anxiety as opposed to symptoms of anxiety and stress. Um, Maybe we need a little definition and explanation. So how do you know somebody has full-blown anxiety? What does that look like? Uh, It's a a great question because we do need to set the the terms because we use them sometimes interchangeably. Um, Worry is, look, I I can be worried about losing my job. I could be worried about the election. I could be worried about a certain event or certain activity happening. Um, And that typically is is what we call transient. It's going to pass. Worry, though, can lead to stress where all of a sudden our bodies start feeling this. You know, we're not sleeping well. We're, you know, we're having, you know, sweats. We're all that type of stuff. Now, it's not necessarily a terrible thing. We, you know, before you have some stress, before a big activity, it can really get you amped up sometimes. Mm-hmm. What stress can lead to, there's to the, now when you get to anxiety, anxiety is impacting our bodies and our lives, just as you talked about with, with your coachee. She's saying, I, I, I can't even think about the things I normally do. That's anxiety. Um, even when we remove the stressor, the anxiety remains. 
And again, this is affecting almost half of people in their 20s, a third of all workers. Um, as you mentioned, this is a killer of productivity. And what do most people do? They hide it. Uh, so you say, how do you spot it? It's extremely hard because we as human beings have become really good at hiding this from anybody in a position of authority. Because, you know, you can give me a promotion, you can give me a raise, you can give me a great assignment or not. Uh, you may chat about it if, if, if you've if you got loose lips, you know. And so there's a lot of reasons that I hold back. In fact, one of our studies shows only one in 10 employees feel safe about talking to their boss about their anxiety. So it really is something we have to be very attuned to as leaders, to not to say, aha, why do I think you've got anxiety? Uh, that's, that's not what we're looking for. But what we are looking for is changes in behavior. You know, if normally you're quite gregarious, you're throwing out lots of ideas, which of course you do, um, and you stop doing that or you're with more withdrawn, uh, that's a change in behavior. Um, and there's two words that I, I would recommend anybody think about when they, when they come to this. It's, I noticed. You know, I noticed, Wanda, usually your reports are really in tune and they're really in depth. And these last few have been really short and, and concise. Is, is everything okay in the work environment? Is there anything I can help with? That's the way you begin the conversation versus, you know, I'm diagnosing you. We're not suggesting right. that at all. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think people are hesitant. Because, you know, the leadership literature would say historically that to be an effective leader, you need to be calm, you need to have great stamina, you need to have great resilience, you need to be able to take it in effect. And we often talk about grit, you know, you have got that certain amount of grit. Well, those don't make it easy for me to say, right, I'm suffering with anxiety. If you think about this, a third of your employees, one third are in full-blown anxiety, deep in where their thinking is no longer logical. And 50% of your young employees are suffering with anxiety. That's a heck of a lot of lost capacity because we can't talk about it because it's not okay. All right. And I love your statement. The statement for a leader is, I noticed something about a change in behavior. And is it okay? Something you want to talk about. I think it's great. All right. So, We've talked a little bit about what's causing the problems, particularly for younger people. What do you think are causing the problems for the rest of the third of the population? Well, and I think they are similar ideas, though. They may be a little, there's a little variation. You know, young people, especially that we talk to, by far their number one concern was job security. Um, you know, we think of the millennials, the Gen Z now coming in as these job hoppers, and they're all about themselves. But you know what, they, they have, you can have to think about where they've come from. They have seen mom and dad go through round after round of restructurings and layoffs and mom and dad's jobs were not uh, secure. And so right. now they're coming into this world, but mom and dad, even with that, with what happened to mom and dad, they told them, look, go to college, you're gonna come out, you're gonna have a, have a good career, you're gonna have a good job. And they came out and they found out, there aren't many good jobs. There aren't, you know, these entry levels, really not entry level. I can't even afford to, to pay my student loans or make the rent payments. I'm moving back in with mom and dad. What I was promised is not happening. Those markers that we had to, to sort of gauge our lives. You know, you have markers like you graduate from college. You, you get a good job. You, you, you buy a house. You, you get married. All those markers are moving five to to seven to eight years out for this younger generation. 
Um, and in many cases, there are many people are thinking, I'll never accomplish that. Also, their the priorities are shifting as well. They're thinking, I don't want to be locked in to, to this kind of world. I want more flexibility. So, so the definite of the inputs that are creating anxiety are a little different. But if we look at what we found were about eight stressors that we talked about in, in anxiety at work and what you can do about them as a leader. You know, the, the biggest one, whether you're 60 or you're 20 coming into the workplace, the biggest one is uncertainty. And it really is the, the most important one we address as leaders. You know, where are we going as an organization? Uh, but also, are, do you fit here? Are you yeah. adding value? And do you have a future here? They're really simple questions that we spend very little time mostly as leaders addressing. Yeah. I, so anybody um, who's focused on how do I keep diverse talent in my organization at the moment, that's the answer. Num- everybody I talk to in the diverse category leaving has lots of opportunities, plenty of places to go. It's a hot market at the moment. And the reason, number one reason they're walking out the door is because nobody's talking to me about what's next in my career. I can't see it. I don't know it. Why would I stick around? Not taking that chance. It's such a great point. Well, you know, the, the idea one is every you exactly every person we talked about in say marginalized groups, people who feel like others, uh, said exactly what you're saying. And what we're seeing is an extremely high levels of anxiety in more marginalized groups. Whether you're the one of the few women in the team, you're the only Muslim, you're one of the few LGBTQ plus, you are uh, a person of color, and it's it's a very white homogenized group, etc. If you are a diverse individual in a, in a group, um, there's a very good chance you have more anxiety or high levels of anxiety. So what can you do about that as a leader? That's really where we do need to stand up. We really do need to, to give people a voice and we do need to advocate for people. You know, this, this is unfortunately, it's almost become politicized where, um, but it's not, there's just high levels of anxiety in people who feel like they are diverse communities. Sure. There's that constant question of, can I say this this way? Mm -hmm. Am I going to fit? Am I going to get rejected? If I do this or say this, can I tell them the truth? That second guessing would undermine anybody's sense of security. And I keep reminding people, this is not about just having people feel good. This level of anxiety is impacting your productivity and performance day in and day out on your team. So you hire the person, why wouldn't you get the best out of them? All right, so while we're on this one about insecurity or um, uncertainty, and some level of uncertainty we're always going to have, but some of it we can do something about, what do you advise leaders to do? Well, again, there's three real big questions that I, I want people to think about. You know, first, uh, the first question is, where are we heading as an organization? And the, the problem is with this, a lot of times leaders will say, no, 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 we talked about, Wanda, we talked about this back in January. We had a big company meeting. We laid out the strategy for the year. Uh, and my, my response probably is the same that you would have as a coach is, great, what have you done this week? Um, <laughs> There's a reason people go to church every week is that people forget every every week or so and they want to be reunited or they or they meditate every day or they try and get in touch with a higher power. Well, you know, people come to work for meaning. They come to work and they want to know that their work is contributing to something bigger than themselves. And, and yet we feel like, well, no, we told them this. Uh, you have to keep telling me and tell me again because 
I'm seeing competitive threats on the horizon. And I want to know how we're dealing with them, whether as a big organization or as a team. Um, and, and leaders will say, yeah, but we don't have all the answers right now. And that's okay. That's all right. Even if you told me that, and we feel like we're going into the dark together and that I feel like I have a voice in this and I feel like, you know, I'm at least going to have an impact on just my little role and what we're doing. If I understand the competitive environment out there and what our strategy is to deal with it, but you got to keep talking about this over and over and over again. Yeah. I can't imagine a leader being able to say, look, I'm seeing what you're seeing. I see the risk. We're on it. We're thinking about it. You know, ideas are welcome. You could even do that part, but just acknowledge it. And you're right. We can't, Why do we think that once a year is good enough? It's kind of like, why do we say performance review once a year or twice a year is actually adequate? All right. So that was one question. Where are we headed as an organization? You said there are other two other questions. What are those? The second is, how am I doing? So individually, um, am I adding value? This comes into this idea of, you know, of gratitude. Uh, am I feeling like I'm contributing? There's a tremendous amount of imposter syndrome we see mm. with high-performance employees. So the smarter somebody gets the, the, or is, the smarter or the, the, the more somebody achieves, in many cases, we feel like, oh, they should you know, they should understand how valuable they are. And it's just what you mentioned earlier about those diverse people who, who have maybe more options because they're being more recruited. Uh, in most cases, we find that people leave. And when we do third-party exit interviews, in many cases, they'll say, well, nobody ever told me to stay. Nobody ever told me how <laughs> valuable I was. It's just a silly little thing that, that we think, no, you know, Susan knows how amazing she is. And, and, and there's so many reasons we don't want to do this. Well, Susan may be amazing, but she sits right next to Jeff. And Jeff's just, you know, he's an average performer. So I don't want Jeff to feel bad. So I, I try to have to temper what I do. And she's always achieving. Well, yeah, she's probably always achieving because she needs that approbation. That's what drives her at this point in her career. Maybe later it'll be different. But we tend to look at things through our, our, little, our own little glasses and if maybe I'm in my 50s and I'm a senior manager and I'm making great money and I have very different motivators from somebody in their 20s who's starting out, they may need more extrinsic motivation, more, more pats on the back, more va validation. So the second one is really to help people understand how am I doing? Uh, one of the folks that I executive coach, he's a, a leader of an auto company and uh, you know, he's a, he's a director, so he's got, you know, 40 employees or so. And we found as we were doing 360s, his young employees have no idea how they're doing. Um, and it's, they're all engineers. And so they assume, well, you should just know if your work is, is good or not. We're, we're giving you evaluations, like you said, every six months. It was no, nowhere near enough. And people were transferring out and leaving because they just simply didn't know how they were doing. doing. So that was number two. That's right. Okay, so that makes sense to me because I can't tell you how many times a marginalized person, let's stay for women for the moment, uh, gets a job offer at a competitor, is ready to walk out the door, and then the entire organization rallies around to say, no, 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 we need you. You can't go. We had these great plans for you. We were hoping to do blah, blah, blah. Too late now. Like, where was that? My son also says, by the way, you know, six months 
between if you wait six months to tell me something is worthless. I've changed. Organization has changed. The world has changed. What's the point there? Okay, so that's number two. How am I doing? That's an easy thing for leaders to do. We don't do it nearly enough. We just assume everybody knows, and you can't underestimate how important that is. I think some advice is once a week. That's a lot. Exactly right, though. But we, you know, we were we've done a lot of work with retail organizations that have such high employee turnover. They have found uh, the ones we've worked with. If they have a career discussion with each of their employees. Once a week, I know it sounds like a tremendous amount, but if you're in a, you know, you have three or 400% turnover, if you have a career discussion once a week, we've found that typically you can cut your turnover in half um, just by sitting down for 15, 20 minutes and saying, okay, now how's your, you know, how are you doing? Um, is there anything you want to learn? Anything, any way you want to stretch and grow? Because that's the number three. The number three is, do I have a future here? And we used to think about this as a career ladder. Um, most organizations I'm working with have gotten rid of that term. Um, I work with Kraft Heinz that, that thinks about it as a, a rock wall. And you're on a climbing wall. And the only thing you can't do on a climbing wall is just stay there. You have to move. You can move sideways. You can move up. You can even come down now and then if that's part of your journey to get where you want to go but it means that you have to move. And, and that's the idea. We're in a continuous learning environment, they say. And we want to keep learning. And so it is not unusual to move people department to departments and to learn new things and grow because we find 90% of millennials say, I want to learn and grow. That is one of my top drivers. Nine mm-hmm. out of, you know how hard mm-hmm. it is to get nine out of 10 people to agree on anything. Um, right. And yet... Our surveys show only 39% of millennials and Gen C so they've learned anything new in the last 30 mm-hmm. days. So a huge disconnect. Especially when in the younger years, you expect that your learning is at its fastest pace ever, that you expect it slows down with time. But I think we all want that. I think we all want to feel like we're learning and growing in some way. I know a lot of managers that I see are going to have that career conversation once or twice a year. But the conversation is going to start with, where do you want to go next? Like, where's your ambition? In my experience, that increases the anxiety because people don't have an answer to it, nor do I think they should have an answer to it. So I loved your statement that 15 minutes, once a week, how are you doing? Is there anything you want to learn? And, and, and I love what you're saying there, Wanda, too. It's not big. Where do you go on to go in the next two to five years? And if I don't say I want to become the CEO, I'm, I'm not ambitious enough. No, it's what new skill would you like to learn or develop? That's less anxiety inducing because, and it's also, instead of pushing me to something, it's inviting me because pushing can be really anxiety inducing. Wanda, I want you up in front of the comp- company next, next quarter, and I want you to present our results. There'll be 3,000 people there, and I, I want you to go do it. And, and you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm not coming <laughs> back tomorrow. <laughs> you know, not that you right. would, but, right. but, uh, but yeah. You know, what instead, what one skill could help our team and could help you? And we work on this together. That is incredibly anxiety reducing and incredibly empowering for people. Right. And it adds to that sense of how am I doing? I'm feeling valued because we're talking about what else I'm going to learn. And I see where I have a future here. Okay. This is a perfect point to take a break, Adrian. Um, so that, you know, the stressors that we've been talking about, I'm going to repeat a number because I think it's important. A third of the 
uh, your population, people working for you are having full-blown anxiety at the moment. That is killing productivity, performance, engagement, creativity, everything you're trying to achieve. And in your younger population, 50% are having full-blown anxiety. They're not going to come out and tell you about it. And as you said, rightly so, you don't want to say, are you having anxiety? But you could notice that their behavior has changed. They're not as sharp or they're a little more edgy than usual and ask the question, I've noticed, blah, 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 blah. Is everything okay? Can I do anything to help? And if you don't do that, if that isn't happening, then the next one is to recognize that the number one stressor is the uncertainty. Three questions that are going to drive people's reduction of uncertainty. One is where are we going as a company? Reminder, 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 even just acknowledging the threats that you're seeing. Number two, how am I doing as an employee? How am I adding value? You reinforce that. And number three, do I have a future here, which is focusing people weekly on what it is they want to learn? So there, I just summarized Adrian's last many years of work in five minutes. So thank you. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to continue this notion about anxiety and the other stressors. My guest today, Adrian Gostick, the book and the podcast, Anxiety at Work. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Adrian Gostick. The book that we're talking about is Anxiety at Work. There's also a podcast in the mental health category, number three in mental health, I should say, called Anxiety at Work. And just to mention that this is not the only book that Adrian has done. There are several others that I have you recommend, All In, The Carrot Principle, and The Best Teams Win. So a lot of work around um, teams, culture, and getting that top performance that we've been talking about. I still want to repeat one more number. One third of your employees, people that are working for you as a leader, regardless where you are in the organization, are in the midst of full-blown anxiety, meaning they are struggling to think clearly. It's starting to have physical impact on their sleep and on their health one third. And it's even higher than that if you've got a large base of young employees. We talked about one stressor, which is the uncertainty and what to do about it. So Adrian, you said there are eight. I can't leave it at that. What are the others? Well, I'll just give you a couple more. One is this idea of overload. And and you mentioned it earlier, uh, Wanda, about this idea of we have these wellness programs or we have mindfulness programs that we have in our workplaces. Most times that we have that, that's that's a, employees told us that's a that's a clue that basically we're supposed to change ourselves. <laughs> uh, we're supposed to get better sleep. We're supposed to get more organized. We're supposed to do some yoga, get exercise, et cetera. Um, When is there a mindfulness class for you guys to stop (laughs) dumping on us so much? Because with the thing with overload is what we find is that, you know, it's this idea of resilience. Um, You know, we did a lot of work. We've done a lot of work in the medical industry where, where people say, you know, that we have physicians, nurses, lab techs, and they all say, do you know how hard it was to get through school, let alone do our jobs? We are the most resilient people on the planet. And you want us to go to resilience training? Why don't we try changing some of the things that we're, you're doing, like all this red tape we're dealing with or this, that, or the other. So it really has to be a partnership here where organizations listen and, and they start doing things that can help. Like, for example, you know, helping people prioritize their tasks mm-hmm. is a huge one with overload. Like just having them on Monday morning, sitting down with your people say, what do you got going this week? Let's prioritize, prioritize those. You know, if one, if this one bumps off, it's okay. This one I think is the most important for our team. Simple little things, you know, balancing work among the team, no matter what team I go into, it seems like there's some people who work 70 hour weeks, they're constantly stressed and others, you know, they're they're quite happy go lucky. You know, they catch the bus at 430 every day and nothing wrong with that if they're getting a lot done, but managers often don't take the time to balance work among the team or rotate people out of high-stress jobs now and then, if they can. You know, there's a lot of things, and we, we talk about it in, in the book, is a lot of things that we can do. You know, one simple little thing with overload is that people need time not only to not be working, but not be thinking about work. 
and what do managers do? It's so it's Saturday morning at eight o'clock and, and the manager gets an idea. Oh, I got to tell the team about this. So what, what does he do? He sends out an email. Um, and he, and when I ask him, why are you doing that? He goes, no, no, my people know. That's just how I think. I just send it out. They don't have to even have to respond, but that's all they're worrying about all weekend is that email. And Oh my gosh, we're just, can't you set your timer for Monday at eight o'clock? Uh, it's simple little things that we do as leaders that create stress leading to anxiety that is, that is just unhealthy. Yeah. I, oh, hours and hours and hours in the last couple of months with people on this notion, both of prioritizing for your team, but prioritizing for yourself. The overload is out the door. And any managers listening to that who believe your team is not working, bah humbug. I think the data is saying they're working more than they've ever worked. And there's no break. Like you don't get up from your desk to go get a cup of coffee anymore. There's just no, it's like, it's crazy. It's just absolutely, totally crazy. So just saying, I've got this new assignment, I have this new thing. Let's talk about where it falls in the priority list. And I don't know about you, Adrian, but I'm seeing as we get people exiting, your power to get stuff done is gone. And there is no slack to say, oh yeah, you just pick up that fifth job. (laughs) Because they've already doing three. Exactly. And, and why pandemic. are they doing it? Because why are they, you know, locked to these things? It's because we're we're so terrified of losing our jobs nowadays. It comes down again to job security. Right. Uh, not just it was the number one issue for millennials, but 60% of people overall who've been surveyed, working Americans and Canadians, et cetera, say my number one issue right now is will I have a job next month? And so that's a huge number to be worried and concerned about this. So yeah, they'll do whatever they can. And it's leading, as you said, to to higher levels of anxiety and it's killing productivity, innovation, all the things we want. Right. Right. Yikes. Okay. So help people prioritize, uh, balance the work among the team, rotate high stress jobs where I can. And I'm going to add a third one, which is if you've got somebody who's underperforming, do something about it because that's killing everybody. All right. So overload is a significant stressor. What's your next one? Well, the next one is this idea of charting people's career paths. We talked about that, which is huge. But the next one is really interesting we found. And it's this idea of helping people overcome perfectionism. It's not something we really thought about as we began this work. We found, however, it's a huge issue. If, you have, if you're a manager and you have enough employees, you're seeing this probably in, 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 in great numbers, is that a lot of people, especially young people, are having a hard time getting started, even doing the work they're supposed to do because they're thinking, well, if I can't get this perfect, uh, I won't even try or I won't try as hard. And, and this comes to that idea of regular check-ins, which helps with everything. If you're finding, you know, gee, you know, Joe's just not getting started with this project, what's going on? Mm-hmm. A lot of times it is this idea of perfectionism. You know, there's a difference between perfectionism and being a, a striver. We all want strivers. We want people who want to do a great, a great amount of, you know, a great job. But perfectionists put extremely high pressure on themselves and sometimes others, and, and it, they're not realistic. Mm-hmm. So again, coming back to my son, who's the scientist, he says, you know, there's the law of diminishing returns. Great in science usually is at this point. And getting to perfect requires this infinite amount of iterations that, that is just simply not necessary 99 times out of 100. 
that we have to be able to help our people understand this is what good enough looks like. Um, he says one time he was working in the lab and he was trying again. He's a, he's a STEM guy. He was trying to get everything perfect. And, and the lab manager came in and said, okay, he says, I should have told you seven or eight out of 10 on these samples is what we're looking for. They're old samples. We're just thrilled with anything you can get out of them. And he says, that just brought my anxiety down considerably. Um, but it was such a simple thing, but nobody thought to let him know what good enough was, what good enough looked like in that situation. Well, are we helping people understand that? So this idea of perfectionism is really a problem that we have to help people understand that failures happen. That's okay. We're going to learn things. Um, again, check in on people and even team them up. If they are a little bit of a perfectionist, they're afraid to get rolling, team them up with others who are more charge ahead types and they'll probably help each other. All right. Now, the thing I see when you say perfectionist is a boatload of managers who are perfectionists and who then add all of that anxiety down on their team because you can never please the boss. Nothing's ever good enough, regardless how hard I try. There's going to be some error rate in it. And we keep reiterating and reiterating and reiterating. And there's huge amount of time lost. So do you have any advice for a perfectionist manager? Well, and you probably coach some people like this as I do myself. Um, so, and what we find in, in the research is that 70% of people say their number one biggest anxiety uh, producer at work is their boss. So yeah, none of us feel like, we all feel like we're the best boss ever. We all feel like, oh no, I have such great relationships with my people. They're not going to tell you uh, this. I had a boss once who uh, was want to say when we'd bring him a project to go, nah, it's not really what I'm looking for. I'll know it when I see it, you know, which right. you need to just imagine the anxiety that would create. Can you give me any more? No, I'll just know it. Okay. <laughs> so we're supposed to just keep trying and trying incredible anxiety levels. Obviously people didn't stay very long with that guy. So one of the things when you talk about, you know, bringing down anxiety levels, or if you're a perfectionist yourself, somebody gave me some great advice when I first became a manager was that if if somebody in your team can do it 70% as well as you, let them do it. And it's really hard for us to accept that. Uh, it's really hard for us to, to accept that on their teams. But what I found was that people stayed uh, with me. They, they, they appreciated the trust that I was putting into them. And yeah, it wasn't exactly what I was looking for, but I had a more empowered team. I had a more engaged team because they felt ownership in the work. And that, you know, when we were going in front of the senior leadership to present projects or, or things we were working on, I would bring them. And, and they knew that that ownership would go all the way up to the senior leadership team. So they, they became very careful about their work. And so there's, there's other ways that you can do this. But one of the most important is to, to really empower your team and realize it's not going to be exactly what you want, but you're going to have better results because your people are going to care more. They're going to work harder at it and a whole bunch of other things. I can't tell you how many times in the days when I was in corporate offices and I would get on the elevator to go up to the umpteenth floor, you know, for whatever C-suite meeting I was having and coming off the elevator would be some young folks. So not young, young, but, you know, mid-career with just this most dejected look on their face, you know, just feeling deflated and like you just see it all over their body and you say, oh, wow, bad. And I was like, oh, my God, you have no idea 
we spent all night staying up doing this report and they just reorganized it completely. And now we got to do it again. And that sense of, I can't achieve what it is in your mind that you're looking for is just debilitating. The only anxiety, you know, is my career okay? Am I doing good enough? Am I valued around here? But I add to that of, I have no idea where to turn or where to start. Okay. It's a big issue. The number two reason that talent, your diverse talent leaves the organization is because you have a manager that you can't make happy. So true. It's a big issue. All right. I want to shift a little bit. I know there are other stressors, but you mentioned something a while back that everybody's talking about this notion of resilience Mm -hmm. and building people who are resilient and more importantly, building a culture that's resilient. Everybody says, oh yeah, this is the secret. If we can have a resilient culture, we got it. And I would agree that that's true, except right now it's just a bunch of words. So in your studies, in your experience, in your writing, in your coaching, what are you seeing makes a big difference in creating a resilient culture? You know, there's two things that really we see in the resilient cultures. The first is an idea we call mastery. And the second is an idea we call social support. Let me kind of explain those. The, this idea of mastery is not that, you know, I'm good at everything I do or I'm, I have, I'm an expert craftsman or woman. No, mastery means that I feel like I have at least some control over the, over the things that are going on in my life, no matter what's happening. Um, it, it's something that's so important that the U.S. Army teaches this to their soldiers and families. Um, they teach them how to, how to understand this, that they're gonna, things are going to happen to you. You're going to have miserable things happen. You're going to have tough things that you're going to have to face. But we have to realize we can control what we can control and keep this idea that I'm, I'm the master of my own domain, if you will, that I, no matter what's coming at me, I'm still in control. And that's a really hard thing to accomplish when we're all facing so many things we do nowadays. But mastery is, is vital. So as a manager, how can I help people with this? Well, we help them focus on what they can control. You know, if you're in a customer service department and, you know, there's just all these people coming and you'll never meet all the demand, then you focus in on quality. You focus in on on what you can control and you help people focus in on there and you help them realize this is what it is. We have to deal with this. Um, But everybody's facing this, but we focus in on this, what we can control. That's mastery. Now, the second idea of, of, social con, uh, of a social network is having people who are actually empathetic. Um, sympathy is different. You know, sympathy is I'm strong, you're weak, let me help you. Um, <laughs> you know, and it, it may not be, you know, you, you, sometimes I just hear people, they go, I keep calling my mom and I want her to understand what I'm going through. She never, she just doesn't. Well, she'll probably never understand it. She'll probably never be (laughs) empathetic. You're going probably to the wrong places. You have to find people who can come down into the pit with you and go, I know, I've been there. Um, You know, again, coming back to the soldier analogy, soldiers coming back from from war or even active duty say that they've, they've found, you know, the best people to speak to aren't really actually psychiatrists or therapists. They're not you know, senior officers or or physicians, they are fellow soldiers because they've been through what you've been through. And you have to find people like that, whether in your work community or or in your family or, or friends, but keep away the ones that bring you down. Go to those ones that really can have some empathy and 
they may not have had exactly the same situation, but they are, are able to go to a dark place in their world and say, I've been in similar situations. What can I do to help? And, you know, just in many cases, nine times out of 10, you just want to be able to talk. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I want to emphasize, it doesn't mean that they have to have been in your situation, right. but they have to hear what that situation is about for you and really appreciate that and respect that and not try to, quote, fix it for you. Because as you're often saying, it's, um, it's really truly about just talking, just having a place where you feel like it can be heard, understood. It's interesting, this notion of mastery. I want to link this back to something you said earlier. So mastery for you is that sense of I have some control over some parts of some aspects of my life. Yeah. I can't control yeah. everything, but I can take some actions that are going to make a difference in the course of my life. A thing I call agency to pick on a psychological term. I may shift to yours just because this makes more sense or it's more understandable. Okay. Now help me with this one. One of the biggest stressors is the uncertainty. And what we say to people in organizations is you own your career. Mm -hmm. You have to take control of your career. One of the biggest stressors is the uncertainty of am I valued here? Do I have a future here? Where are we going? How do I reconcile those two? Because the truth is I can't take control of 100% of my career. We're not helping people understand how to even take a bit of control of their career. Got any advice? No, and that is what is really anxiety-inducing. So many of the of the really good organizations that I get to go into are are putting more control in the power or in the hands of their people. And one of the things with my work, and when we wrote All In, we began a lot of work on. That's a culture book. We began a lot of work on helping corporations with their with their corporate cultures. We've been doing this for a decade now, and and so people will say, "Oh, you must go into some really diseased cultures." You know, they look in the news and they go, "Oh, that company that just got." And, and my answer is that company will never call me. A company will never <laughs> call you, Wanda. They, the companies that call us are really good companies that want to get better. They actually believe in culture and they're looking to do those things. And so one of the things that these cultures do, I notice, is that they really do put a lot more authority in the hands of their people to, to watch out for their careers. When, when we were writing this, we, we actually interviewed the uh, – the head of the uh, Harvard Business Review MBA program's placement office. And he said, you know, he said, back in the, the day, he says, my, my MBAs would go for, you know, great sounding jobs. They would go for cool opportunities. He says, now it's all about career development. He says, they sign on these amazing young, newly minted MBA women and men. They sign on if a company has a really structured way to develop their careers. We're going to sit down with you every month. We're going to give you interesting things to learn, to grow, to develop, and it's going to be in your power. You are going to be able to say, I want to try this. Can I push and, and try this new thing? And we're going to encourage that versus you're going to feel locked into one manager in one department because this person wants to grab and hold you forever because that's their little fiefdom. And so we have to really change the way we think about our organizations that it's awesome when we have talent move and grow and develop. You know, that's part of who we are. And so, so many of the, the really innovative organizations I'm working with are thinking about this. They're not thinking like, I own this talent. They're feeling like this talent is here working for us. How can we help their experience? Because if we do, they're going to stay longer. They're going to be more engaged and they're going to give us their all. 
And they're going to say great things about us. And they're going to send our friends to work for us. And they might come back again later. That's where (laughs) that's the prize at the end of the day. I'm smiling because I'm thinking about a couple of young graduates I know from a Harvard MBA program who are indeed have left companies because they feel like they're locked into a manager. That relationship isn't going very well and they're not learning anything new. It's a hot job market. Why would you stick with that? And so I love the notion that the company is responsible for structuring this, not plastering the slogan on the wall and saying, good luck, go figure it out for yourself, Mm -hmm. but actually having systematic conversations about growth and learning, not about answers and about conclusions. Okay. All right, Adrian, we're like totally out of time here. You got 10 seconds, one last piece of advice for a manager. What would you say? Be empathetic. Uh, If you're not naturally empathetic, I'm not really naturally empathetic. As a boss, though, I've had to learn. Uh, If there's one thing, you know, you mentioned earlier, Wanda, the the, 10 years ago, these were the, the great leadership characteristics. Now it's about empathy. It's about compassion. It's about creating relationships with your people. If you do that, they're going to stay longer. They're going to be less anxious. We have to change who we are if we want to keep people. Yeah. And I'm going to come back to something I have said dozens of times on this show. It's not just seeing the person for the output that they produce. It's seeing the person as a whole human being with a life that's outside of work and trying to package that all together. Okay, Adrian, um, what takes you out of your comfort zone? Oh, wow. It takes me out of my comfort zone. Let's see. Uh being asked questions like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. No, no it's, a, it's a great question because, you know, by now, it, my problem is sometimes I do, we do the same things over and over again that we've done them so long that I have to actually push myself sometimes out of my comfort zone to say, I want to do this better. I want to be more prepared. I want to. And so, you know, I think sort of vulnerability sometimes for mm-hmm. me can be. So when somebody asks sort of personal kind of questions like you're asking actually right now, that can push me out of my comfort zone and it's a good thing. Great. I think we all have to get out of our comfort zone periodically. And so not necessarily the more the merrier, but occasionally the more the better. All right. My guest today, Adrienne Gostick, the book that we've been talking about is Anxiety at Work. I realize that sounds like a thing you're not sure you need to focus on, but let me reassure you, you do. I've said it several times, 30% of employees that are working for you, not somewhere else in the organization, are suffering with full-blown anxiety, which means their productivity is shot. It means their mental health is shot. It means their innovation and creativity is shot. It means their ability to think logically through what's the next best step is shot. And it probably also means their motivation is gone. If that isn't enough to get you focused, then then you've missed the point of today, I think. It's not to turn us all into psychologists, but it is to say, what am I doing as a manager day in and day out, week in and week out, that's going to help people? And I love the examples that you've given, Adrian. this notion of conversations with people about their careers, which is not about where you're going. It's about what do you want to learn? What's the next skill you want to acquire? That gratitude principle that here's what I'm appreciating. You're doing a good job. This is a great thing regularly, not every three months and so forth. Um, And empathy, just sometimes wanting to hear. I think those are my three big takeaways from today. So thank you. 
Join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. If you like this podcast, please rate us highly on your favorite podcast player. And if you want to know more about how to apply these principles and others, check out our new subscription service at Out of the Comfort Zone. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 